Well, good morning. It is uh, fun to be back up here. I feel like I'm getting back on the horse in the saddle again. And uh, But I will admit that I've enjoyed being part of just out there and uh, looking up here. So thank you, Christy, for giving me the opportunity to come back and speak. So I want to start the way that we've started most of our sessions with a picture of my family. Um, and... This was, uh, my nephew is not there, and my mom had gone to be with the Lord, but it's my two big brothers, and then uh, little Bubby's on the left, and his wife is in the white, and then big Bubby over here, and then my two nieces, Valerie, and her husband, Jennifer. Those three kids on the front with me are adopted, and they're blood siblings. They were born a month apart, but they're from the same mother, and so I love those three kids, and then Valerie... Wait. Oh, a year apart. <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've never had a baby, okay? So <laughs> I can't remember how long it takes. <laughs> okay. And then uh, Jennifer and her husband, Ryan, and uh, the two boys. And then, of course, my furry uh, family. Hobson is on the left and Hannah on the right. That is my family. So, well, if somebody were to ask you to describe our world today in one word, what would that word be? Would it be peaceful, loving, um, God-honoring, or would it be chaotic? I heard that. Stressful, sinful. The word that I would use, if somebody asked me, how would you describe our world today in one word? The word I would use is the word fallen. Because we live in a fallen world. And it dates all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. And God did not create our world to be fallen. He created a perfect world and he put Adam and Eve in there to enjoy communion with him and fellowship with him. But we know Satan entered the picture and tempted Adam and Eve and they disobeyed God and sin entered the world and their consequences. The world is fallen. There is sin that is carried on through then. We um, have seen our world get progressively worse. And, it, you know, again, it started with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. When Cain killed Abel, the period of Noah, all the way through the Israelites. And we're going to see just how sin is, is rampant in our world. And today, the way we see sin in our world. And so it's moved progressively further and further away from God as people choose sin over disobedience. So today, we are still living in a fallen world. A world that's uh, full of sin, has no respect for God. Thankfully, those of us who are believers and have put our faith in Christ, we are no longer separated from God. I mean, Adam and Eve were separated from God. That was a consequence of sin. They couldn't commune with him in that close fellowship. But we can because of what Jesus did, which we're going to look at next semester. But we still, even though we can commune with God, 
we still live in a fallen world. And so over the last uh, seven weeks, we have been studying history. Uh, the history from creation all the way to the established kingdom of Israel. But in this week's lesson, we took a break from history. And we looked at five books that are classified as wisdom books. And I want to give you one takeaway, one challenge from this week's lesson to take home and ponder. And that is live godly in an ungodly world. But how do we do that? Well, the five wisdom books that we studied this week give us guidance. And I want to give you five principles for how to live godly in an ungodly world. And I'm going to give you one principle from each of these five books. So we're not going to go deep with any book, but I'm just going to touch on what we can take away from that book to help us live godly in an ungodly world. And so we begin first with the book of Job. And the principle from the book of Job is trust God. You know, let me just give you a little background here. We don't know exactly when Job lived, but most scholars believe that he lived before Moses, probably during the time of the patriarchs. And they say that, they believe that, because he never mentions the Exodus at all, and he never refers to the Mosaic Covenant, and he never uses the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh is not found in this book, and that's the covenant keeping name that God used with Moses. So that's why I'm starting with Job because it was probably written at a different time period or at least the man that we're talking about was in a different time period than the Psalms and Song of Solomon, etc. So you know the story. God allowed Satan to test Job's faith and he did that through loss and pain and suffering. And Job didn't do anything to deserve what he went through, but God had a purpose for what he did. And we know, I mean, one purpose was to show Satan that Job is faithful to me, and he will be faithful to me regardless of what, what happens. But another purpose was he used that suffering to draw Job into an intimate, more intimate relationship with him. And Job started out strong in chapter 1 after he lost his family and except for his wife and his possessions, other things. And he, he stayed faithful to God and he didn't curse God. But as we read the book of Job and things got harder and, and the suffering became more intense and he lost his health, he began to wrestle with God. And it's okay for us to wrestle with God. He, he asked God questions. He was sharing his heart with God. He even hated the day he was born. And then he had three friends that tried to come and convince him, Job, you've got sin in your life. That's why you're suffering. You need to confess that sin. And ladies, let me just tell you here, we need to be careful who we listen to. Because the world can tell you this, but that's not God's word. And when you see somebody suffering, it does not mean it's because there's sin in their life. God may just have a purpose for that suffering. Well, 
finally, you know, God did relieve Job of his suffering and he blessed him once again with children and possessions even greater than he had before this started. And even though Job struggled with what God was doing, he came through that time of suffering with a deeper knowledge and relationship with God. He trusted God through it all. Even when he did not understand, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? He trusted God. And that's a principle for us to apply in our own lives. A key verse, and I'm going to give you all a key verse in each of these five books. A key verse from Job is <clears throat> Job 42.5. He said, at the end of this, the book, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He's saying, God, I, I knew you. I thought I knew you. I had a great relationship with you. But now, wow, I see you in a completely different light. I know you so much more intimately. And that's a result of trusting God in the hard times. You know, you've heard me share many times about one of the hardest seasons of my life was caregiving for my mom in her last years. And I, you know, I cried out to God, what are you doing? Why don't you take her home? Why are you letting her just have this no quality of life? I can't do this anymore. But you know, after mom passed away and went home to be with the Lord, I had some months to process that season. And I wrote in my journal, God, I would not change anything about that season because of where you have brought me as a result. My relationship with you today is so much deeper than it was before that season. I don't want to go back to what it was before. And that's where we should be. God takes us through hard seasons, yes. But we trust Him through it. And we allow Him to use it in our lives the way He needs to. And He typically with me, uses suffering to draw me into a place that I could not have gotten if everything was going great. So how do we see Jesus in the book of, of Job? Well, I'm going to give you a section called A Glimpse of Jesus in each of these books. And the way we see a picture of Jesus in the book of Job is he really is kind of a picture of Jesus because Job suffered for something that he did not deserve. It wasn't because of sin in his life, but he suffered greatly. Well, Jesus suffered greatly for something he didn't deserve. He, he had no sin. He was perfect, holy. He didn't deserve what he went through on the cross. But God had a purpose for Job's suffering. God had a purpose for Jesus' suffering, even though they didn't bring it on themselves. They suffered because God had a purpose in their suffering. So how do we live godly in an ungodly world? Well, the first principle from the book of Job is trust God. Trust your sovereign God, even when living 
in a fallen world. A world that, where there's undeserved suffering. And yes, we're going to have those moments that we ask God why. I remember last year we were asking God, why did you allow Eliza Fletcher, a young woman who loves you, to be kidnapped and murdered? God, why did you allow this person to get this disease? Why are you allowing this person to go through this hardship in their marriage? God, why did you allow the crime? Why, why are we dealing with this crime in our world today where we don't even want to go to the grocery store? God, why did you allow Hamas to attack Israel and kill innocent babies? It's okay to ask the questions, but we have to trust God. God, you're sovereign. You've got a plan. So I'm going to give you a question to ponder in each of these uh, four books. Uh, and I hope that you will take time after you leave here and just meet with the Lord and ask these questions and talk to him. But the question from the book of Job is, what area in your life do you need to trust God with today? What is it that you're just struggling with and have why questions? Life does not always make sense, but God is always in control. So that's the first principle from the book of Job. To help us live godly in an ungodly world, we need to trust God. The second principle comes from the book of Psalms. And that principle is pour out your heart to God. And I love the Psalms because as David and the other psalmists pour out their hearts to God, they express many of the feelings and the emotions that we're feeling as we live in a fallen world. And God wants us to meet with him. He wants us to commune with him. He wants us to be honest in what we're feeling. And the Psalms show us how to pour out our hearts in two ways, worship and lament. And you looked at that in your lesson this week. So how does pouring out our hearts to God in worship and lament help us live godly in an ungodly world? Well, first, let's talk about worship. When we worship, we, we take our eyes off of the situation and what's going on around us, and we put our eyes on the one who is in control of what's happening. And we focus on him, and we praise him, and we worship him, and we say, God, I don't understand, but you know what you're doing, and I'm going to trust you. It, worship helps us. Because we're not looking at what's going on. We're looking at the one who is in control of what's going on. And we find comfort and peace when we worship. But then what about lament? Well, when we lament, we pour out our hearts to God in complete honesty. And we can tell him what we're feeling. We can ask him questions. We can voice our complaint, what's bothering us? But the important thing is that we can't stay there in the complaint and the, the questioning. We, we need to always come back to that place of trust. So this worship and lament is like a little circle, a cycle. Yes, I'm going to lament, but I'm always going to come back to trust and worship. Oh, I'm going to lament, but I'm always going to come back 
to trust and worship. When we lament, we find release. We've let it out. We've shared it with the one that knows what's going on. You know, uh, we took you all through, a lot of y'all went through the trauma healing workshop that we did several years ago uh, in the spring after Heart to Heart uh, Bible study was over. And one of the things that we had you do in that workshop was to write a lament psalm. And I hope you all did it. Um, And I remember when I had to write mine, I had gone through a training before that. I'd never written, well, I didn't think I'd ever written a lament psalm before, but as I'm reading back through my journals, I realize most of my journals are laments. (laughs) And, uh, but when they sent us out to write the lament psalm, I thought, what am I, what's on my heart? And I just started putting down on paper all my feelings and emotions about my singleness. God, why did you choose singleness for me? I think I would have made a wonderful wife, a good mother. I, God, why, why do you want me to, to, why is it always a closed door? Why this? Why? And I just started pouring out, God, I don't feel loved. God, I don't feel special. I want to complete somebody. I want somebody to complete me. God, why? But then I just started journaling, but God, if this is your best, if this is your plan for me, and if you can use me better as a single than God, it, I accept it. And so he uses that time of lament to bring us to a place of, of release. Of God, I, I trust you with this. And I do. And right now, I would not change my life, my, my singleness at this point in my life. Um, so... As we pour out our hearts to God, He strengthens us to live godly lives in an ungodly world. Let me give you a key verse from Psalms, Psalm 62, 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. And that really encompasses both the lament and the worship. The trust in Him, worship Him, pour out your heart before Him. Lament. So where do we see a picture, a glimpse of Jesus in the book of Psalms? Well, one is that there is a constant theme in the Psalms of the provision of a Savior or a Deliverer. Uh, David will say, you're my salvation, you're my Deliverer. And yes, there were times he was referring to immediate deliverance from his enemies, but he knew, oh, I'm sorry, (laughs) my phone rang. Um, He... I just lost my thought. He was always thinking, though, he knew that there would one day be a Savior who would come and deliver him. So that is a theme through the book of Psalms, but also the Messianic Psalms. There are so many Psalms that refer to his coming, his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and the kingdom, his reign. So let me give you a question to ponder from Psalms. what's on your heart that you need to pour out to God? And this may be the same thing that is your, your answer to the first question. What do you need to trust God with? But it may be something different. What do you just need to be honest with God about what you're feeling? Pour it out. 
but always come back to that place of worship and trust. So the first two principles that help us live godly in an ungodly world are trust God from the book of Job and pour out your heart to God from the book of Psalms. Now we come to Proverbs, the third principle. Fear God. The book of Proverbs has been said to be bumper sticker theology because a bumper sticker gives a message in a few words. And that's what Proverbs, Proverbs are short messages of wisdom for how to live godly in an ungodly world as we relate to people on the horizontal level. And it's getting harder and harder sometimes to do that in the world. But also... As we relate to God, (coughs) sorry, we need wisdom in doing that. But where do we find wisdom? Well, the key verse is Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We find wisdom to live godly in an ungodly world as we fear God. And I want to give you two definitions of fearing God. One, you're familiar with. We've shared it with you many times. Uh, It means to revere, worship, and serve God. To turn in awe to the living God. To say, God, I adore you. You are amazing. I'm in awe of who you are. That's fearing God. But a second definition I came across as I was studying this And I really liked this. Fear of the Lord is worshipful submission. And I'd never really heard that before, but I thought it really makes sense. As we come to meet with God, we worship Him and we surrender to His will as we worship Him, His plan. We can say, God, I'm overwhelmed, I'm scared, but you can handle anything and I I, I accept it. You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane did that. He started out with worship. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. But take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. That's an example of fearing God. Of revering Him and and accepting His plan. So how do we see Jesus in the book of Proverbs. Well, Jesus is wisdom. He's God's wisdom. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 1 24. He says, to those who know Christ, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Christ is wisdom. And so we find wisdom in our personal relationship with Christ as we walk closely with him. So a question to ponder from this book, where are you looking to find wisdom? Because if you're looking to the world, you're going to have trouble living godly in an ungodly world. But if you're looking to God and you're fearing and revering Him, He will give you wisdom as you walk closely with the Lord. So the first three principles, trust God, pour out your heart to God, and fear God. And then the fourth comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Look to God. And specifically, look to God for meaning in life. 
Now, there's been some disagreement on who wrote Ecclesiastes, but it was most likely written by Solomon uh, near the end of his reign as king, uh, near the end of his life, and he's looking back over his life. And Solomon addresses all the things that we are tempted to look to on this earth in order to find meaning. Things like pleasure, relationships, riches, work. But none of those things give us lasting meaning. And so the key verse from Ecclesiastes is 3.11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. I love that verse. And as I was studying, I came across uh, in Tony Evans' commentary, uh, something he said that I thought, I, I love what he said about this verse. He said, we were made for eternity, so temporal things of this world will never satisfy us and give us lasting meaning in life on this earth because all that is under the sun, all the earthly things, is <clears throat> not meant to satisfy it's meant to point us to another world. Our hearts are designed to long for something eternal. I love that. All these things we look to for meaning, no, they're never going to satisfy. They were never meant to satisfy and give us meaning in life. They were meant to point us to, yes, you're never going to find meaning here. They're pointing us to an eternal life where there is eternal meaning. And I don't know about you, but I've never longed for my eternal home as much as I long for it today. I am so ready to be there. So how do we see Jesus in this book of Ecclesiastes? Well, Jesus is the one who gives our lives meaning. Every disappointment, every vanity that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes, it has its remedy in Jesus Christ. You want unconditional love? Jesus loves you unconditionally. You want riches? There's nothing to compare with the earth, with the heavenly riches that Jesus has for you. You want forgiveness? Jesus gives you complete forgiveness. Everything is found, is satisfied in Him. And meaning in life comes from our relationship with Jesus. He said in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and might have it abundantly. That is where we find meaning and purpose in life, through Jesus. And so look to God. You know, I remember uh, when I was in Dallas, I worked in the hospital uh, running the heart-lung machine for 18 years, and I hated my job. And I remember sharing with a friend from church and telling her how much I hated working in the hospital, and I didn't find any meaning in it, no purpose, even though I was keeping a patient alive. But <laughs> I, I did not, I just didn't feel excited about going to work. It was no it was just like vanity. All's vanity. I'm just tired of it. Same thing every day. And Joni said something to me that, you know, I've never forgotten. And I just came across it again recently in my journal from those days. She reminded me, she said, Cricket, you're looking at your job through the wrong perspective. 
It's not meant to satisfy you and to give you meaning. Look at your job through the lens of Jesus. How can you use your time in that job to point people to him? Look at it as, a, as your mission field. How, when you go to work, don't go, oh, I don't want to save another life today. But <laughs> God, who can you use me? Who, who needs to hear about you today? Who can I point to you today? That will give you meaning in life, not the job. She was right. And I've never forgotten that. I still hated the job, but it, she gave me a different perspective. So a question to ponder from um, Ecclesiastes is where are you looking to find meaning in life? Relationships? Money? That perfect job? Or position? Or to Jesus? That's where we find meaning in life. So that's the principle from Ecclesiastes, look to God for meaning in life. And then we come to our last book, Song of Solomon. Oh, I was so excited when I saw that I was going to get to teach Song of Solomon. The principle from Song of Solomon, honor God in your marriage. And I would even expand that to say, honor God in your marriage and your relationships outside of marriage. Solomon wrote this book during his reign as king of Israel, and it was probably early in his reign before he got caught up with all of his many wives and his concubines. And there are a number of ways that scholars have interpreted this book, and we're not going to go into detail, but what they agree on is no matter how you interpret it, the purpose of the book of Song of Solomon is to describe and extol human love in marriage. Marriage is God's design. And we see that back in Genesis 2, 24 to 25 with Adam and Eve. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. God designed marriage to be an intimate relationship between a man and a woman. But our world has drifted so far from God's design for marriage and the way that we're to love one another. There are those today in our world who say, well, you know what? There's not just two genders, male and female. There's a bunch of genders. And so marriage doesn't have to be between a male and a female. It can be between any of these genders. That's not what God's word says. Or they say, we don't even need marriage anymore. Why would anybody want to get married? Because we need to experiment with all these different relationships. Why just be committed to one person? That's not God's design. It's not okay to have intimacy outside of marriage. That's not God's design for marriage. And so Song of Solomon gives a picture in this book of the deep, love and commitment that is part of godly marriage the way that God designed it. And we're getting away from that. So the principle, honor God in your marriage. The key verse is Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 8, verse 7. Many waters can quench love, cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. 
In other words, the love for your spouse should be so strong, so solid that no flood, no storm can wipe it out and destroy that marriage and that love for your spouse. That it will withstand anything. Even all the struggles that you're going to deal with in marriage. And marriage isn't going to be easy. So how does this book give us a, a glimpse of Jesus? Well, this book pictures Christ's love for his bride, the church. As well as, and that, and when I say the church, that means individually you and me. This book gives us a picture of the commitment and love of Christ for us, his bride. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us completely. But we are also to love our husband, our heavenly husband, Jesus, with that wholehearted commitment. You know, I've joked with people saying, no, I don't have an earthly husband, but I have the best husband in the whole world that loves me all the time. Song of Solomon 2.4, he says, He has brought me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. That's a declaration of the love relationship between Jesus and the believer. My banner over you is, is love. I am going to protect you and I want everybody to see how much I love you. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to go off and flirt with somebody else. He's focused on us, and that's the way our marriages should be. Even though the world doesn't celebrate and revere marriage the way God intended it to be, if we're going to live godly in an ungodly world, we have to honor God in marriage. And in our relationships outside of marriage, I've had too many friends whose spouse is kind of had a wandering eye with somebody at work and things just went downhill. We need to honor God in all of our relationships so that it would not hurt that relationship in our marriage. Two questions to ponder from this book. Are you honoring or dishonoring God in your marriage? And is there some relationship out there that maybe you're flirting with that you need to um, pull back from? And then a second question, do you love your husband Jesus with all your heart? Are you being faithful to him? So we live in a fallen world and it is hard for us as believers to live godly lives in an ungodly world. But these five wisdom books give us instruction of how we can do that. One, trust God. Trust God when life doesn't make sense. Second, pour out your heart to God in lament and worship. Third, fear God. Be in awe of who He is to find wisdom. And then fourth, look to God. Look to Him for meaning in life, not the temporal pleasures of this earth. And then fifth, honor God. Honor God in your marriage and in your relationships outside of marriage. Which of these five principles do you need to work on? 
in order to live godly in an ungodly world. Let's be a light for Christ in an ever-darkening world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for these five wisdom books that give us guidance. And Father, I pray that we would not um, just blow them off and get overwhelmed by the material, but that, Lord, we would apply the wisdom from these books as we are living in hard times, and the world just seems to get worse every day. But God, you are in control, and we can trust you. Let us be lights, Lord, to those around us. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.